at the actual time. I walked outside, sat on a bench and cried. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to make mentorship more accessible by interviewing brilliant leaders who are building exceptional purpose-driven brands. Today, I'm joined by Molly Johnson-Jones, the co-founder and CEO of Flexa. Molly's career started in investment banking, but abruptly came to a halt when she was inexplicably sacked for asking to work from home due to an autoimmune disease that had been causing her a lot of pain. Showcasing immense grit and resilience, Molly turned this shocking event into inspiration for a new life mission and launched Flexa, the global directory for verified flexible companies. Today, Flexa has certified hundreds of world-class businesses as truly flexible employers and raised £2.6 million in funding. In fact, half of their cap table are women investors, a rare but incredibly important step as we hope to see more gender equality on tech boards. I had the pleasure of meeting Molly back in January and absolutely love what she stands for and the, what the business is building. So much so that JBM got flexified and are very proud to be a partner of theirs. I am so excited to welcome Molly onto the podcast today. So Molly, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you. And no, not at all. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, we always like to start off the pod with some quickfire questions so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So if you could finish the following sentences for me, that would be amazing. One of my daily habits is... I'm actually a very habit-driven person. I quite like um, randomness. What do I do every day? Drink coffee and exercise. Good one. My first ever job was... My first ever job, I was a veterinary assistant. Do you have a passion for animals or was that just a random job? I do. I grew up on a dairy farm and my dream is when uh, hopefully eventually we're successful with Flexa is to own an old dog's home, which is effectively a retirement home for rescue dogs. And that's all I want to do in life. I love that. What a great life mission. Amazing. I mean, I'm sure that will become reality. Brilliance to me means? Freedom. Couldn't agree more. Love that. I wish I could be better at. Gosh, there are a lot of things I wish I could be better at. Probably I wish that I could be better at running. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do you know what? As somebody whose wife has run the London Marathon, half marathons, used to win the steeplechase every year at school, I am embarrassingly bad at running. I totally agree with that. And I do like one and a half mile, two mile runs because I just hate it so much that I cannot bear going further. Interesting. Do you run? And is this something you're working on? I do run. And when like I have got to the point in the past, like I, I did a half Ironman about five years ago. I've done lots of half marathons, but I have this thing where like I really hate it. I get to that point where I can do that slowly. And then I just don't do it for six months. So then I go back to being unable to even run 5k. And then I have to go through the whole process again. Whereas if I actually just kept running consistently, like maybe I'd hate it a bit less, but I can't bring myself to do that. I mean, you sound like a much more serious runner than than me. Not now. Now I can barely run 10k. (laughs) Oh, I think it's just about keep going, keep going. No, thank you. I'm sure there's other people listening to this that will agree with that one. A misconception people have about me is? I think people think that I'm very driven and hard-nosed and like severe sometimes whereas I'm actually quite sensitive I do actually care interesting that's very very honest of you is that a front perhaps that you put on because you're sensitive or is it something that people just don't read you in the right way do you think I always like to compare there are like get very deep very quickly (laughs) I think that there are two kind of types of people when they judge people 
And you either assume someone's intent or you see just somebody's actions. And I'm a very intent driven person. Like I'll always think, you know, what was the intent behind here? Like even if somebody's in a bad mood, like is their intent bad? Whereas I think a lot of people judge people based just on actions like, oh, that person had a raised voice or, oh, that person didn't use soft words. So that means they're annoyed with me. And I think I'm just very direct. And so often people misinterpret my intention as being quite severe when my intentions are good. That's, I think, so wise and very true. I think we're often quite quick to judge. It's something that I've learned a lot. I think it's part of like marriage and having sort of a, a diverse team that, you know, especially I have people from different countries or just different personality types. Sometimes you can see clashes happen, but often it's actually just because we're not looking at it from their perspective and it's kind of you're just taking it on face value whereas people do communicate differently so i think it's a really good point thanks for sharing finally can you share something that we couldn't learn from your cv so that could be a, a failure a setback something in your career that you've learned a lot from well the one that i would usually say is obviously that i was sacked from investment banking for having an autoimmune disease but you know that already so that's a bit boring so as well as being sacked once for not so many seeds, I was actually made redundant for my first job because half of the, well, the whole equities division at Nomura was canned. So I got made redundant, then I got sacked. My third job, I left voluntarily. My fourth one, I got made redundant. And my fifth one, I left voluntarily. It's like Henry VIII's wives. <laughs> wow, you've some serious bad luck there. But you've turned it all into a beautiful, brilliant business. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to dig into it. Thank you for being so open. And I think that's a great, in itself, that answer really shows that there's this often stuff that's completely out of our control when it comes to careers. And actually that doesn't define you and that there is always opportunity out there. And I think particularly in this, the world we're in right now, despite all the doom and gloom going around because of the economic downturn, there's still so much opportunity. And, and you can have some bad luck, but bounce back. And you are the prime example of someone that has done that to great effect. So thank you for sharing. I'd also say that like that also points to the fact that I probably wouldn't have admitted this when I was younger, but um, I was clearly a terrible employee and was always destined to be better at running my own business. Yeah, very fair. And you know what? I was probably the same, to be honest with you. I've always said I will never go back to working in a big business, probably work for anyone else ever again, because I am an entrepreneur founder. It's probably a nightmare to manage. So that's very true. Well, thank you, Molly. And look, you, you briefly touched upon it around your early career in investment banking and what sparked the idea for Flexa. But for anyone that doesn't know much about the business, can you just tell us a bit more about that whole situation and ultimately what led you to starting up Flexa? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was, gosh, I'd have been about 23, I'd been struggling with autoimmune disease. It was undiagnosed at the time for about five years. And at that point, I think, investment banking not the most notoriously flexible industry i was getting like i was starting work at 6 30 in the morning so i was probably getting five hours sleep a night i was very stressed so i had really long hours now i know that doesn't help autoimmune diseases so it meant that i was i was unable to walk and in a lot of pain about once a week so i asked to work from home when that happened 10 days later they put a settlement package in front of me sacked me and told me to leave immediately wouldn't even let me get my stuff so i was like oh my god what do i do and um, I then obviously started job hunting and I was like, maybe it's not a thing to mention. And all I wanted at the time was just to be able to know where it would allow me to work from home one or two days a week. That was literally all I wanted. You know, flexibility has evolved so much since then, but that was all I wanted. And it was impossible. Absolutely impossible. You tore through dozens and dozens and dozens of job descriptions. It might have a mention of flexible working at the bottom, but what does that actually mean? So then fast forward through a couple of jobs that I ended up, you know, doing pretty well in but 
ultimately they weren't really flexible either. Like it was very much like the exception to the rule. Oh, if you have to, and you had to prove why you had to, you know, I was sending pictures of my swollen feet from the hospital, like all sorts of rubbish. And it just made me feel very threatened because I was well able to work very hard, but sometimes I needed to be at home. So then I ended up in a really flexible company. We were also flexified actually, 11FS. And um, it was totally normal. But I was like, wow, people work from home one or two days a week. There's like no questions asked. As long as you're getting your work done, it doesn't matter. And that was amazing to me. And so I asked them, you know, why don't you publicize this? And they were like, well, we put it on our careers page and on the bottom of our job descriptions, which is what we hear from all companies. I was like, yeah, but no one can find you unless they know who you are they won't get to that point where they're researching your flexible working environment. Like, And then they were like, well, there's nowhere that allows people to find out like how they're going to work and find those companies. And this coincided with Morris, who's my now fiance, was my boyfriend at the time. He's also one of our three co-founders. And he was working at Betfair, which was super flexible too. He had the same conversation there because he was thinking about leaving and looking at new places. Couldn't find flexibility. They were flexible before it was like normal as well. And we were just like, this is a broken system. Why are companies that offer great working environments being lost in amongst the noise of like very bland, boring job descriptions? Shouldn't it be that those companies offer that flexibility and are transparent and open about it? Shouldn't they have the best employer brand? Shouldn't they be able to attract the best talent? Because ultimately, some of the best people want flexibility. So that led us to co-founding Flexor with Tim, who's behind me. And building the global directory for verify flexible companies so you come on and you filter by exactly what kind of flexibility you want you know it could be you want a dog-friendly office you want to work from home three days a week you want flexible hours working four hours of 11 to 3 and you can find all of those companies that match exactly what you're looking for and that for now half a million users that we've amassed in 70 different countries that's a complete game changer people tell us all the time like my god why didn't this is so simple why didn't i think of it before and it's just flipping the hiring process on its head, giving candidates the information that actually is a deal breaker if it's not there. But people suffer through three rounds of interviews, even off the stage to try and get to that point. Or they're told, oh, you can request it on day one. That level of insecurity and precarity just isn't there. So true. Uh, well, thank you so much, because I think what you're doing is you've just something that a lot of people have you know, really care about, but have not been able to access these sorts of opportunities easily. You know, you're just making it so much easier. And, and it's become increasingly over the last few years, given what we do in our day job, the most requested thing, the most important thing to so many people, flexibility. You know, JBM pre-pandemic was was actually a hybrid business. And often they'd be like, what? Like you let your team work from home? And it was slightly selfish in the first instance. I was like, I have a young daughter. I'm not around enough. Like I, I need to do this. And the pandemic expedited that. We were only worked from home once a week previously. But yeah, it's just so great. And I'm a big fan. Before we come on to talk a bit more about Flex, I just want to go back to being sacked in the way that you were must have been horrendous, like a horrible experience. And you've clearly, as you mentioned, you've had some real bad luck with jobs before. For anyone that's listening to this that may have been in that situation before, can you talk us through that process, how you felt at the time, and then what you did to heal yourself from that you know, awful situation, which unfortunately is happening a lot at the moment? And how have you come out the other side of it, like stronger for it? I mean, I'd love to say, like, I walked out and was like, fuck you guys. I didn't want to work for you anyway, but... Yeah, eventually I was like that after about three months, but like at the actual time, I walked outside, sat on a bench and cried. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> so raw at the time, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think I was mature enough to 
cope with it either. Like I think ultimately you have a bit more faith in humanity. You're a bit more of an optimist when you're 23. And yeah, I don't think I really understood kind of how the corporate world works quite as much. Like ultimately if you are risking them, you know, changing their culture or having to let more people work flexibly or whatever, they're going to weigh that up. And ultimately if you're the problem, they're going to get rid of you, which is fair enough, you know, like fine. Like obviously it's shit, but like they can do what they want to do. And I hope now they're struggling to hire people. But how did I then move on from that? Well, I had to go through all of the court settlement stuff and that took up a lot of time. And then I think eventually I, I kind of just cracked on with it. I was like, I have, to, I have to have a job. I have to pay my rent. And I just sort of didn't really think about it and carried on. I think actually it was only when I founded Flexer and I think I got out of that very continuous sort of nine to five going to the office every day, just plowing on and not really having time to think and reflect. I think it was only when we founded Flexer that I was like, oh, actually, what happened was pretty mental. And then I met loads of other people who'd been through a similar thing as well. Not necessarily disability, but maybe coming back from maternity leave or being a carer or parent, you know, lots of different reasons. And I think ultimately realizing the injustice of the situation, the fact that really there's a massive underutilized workforce just because the nine to five or the nine to six in the office every day doesn't work for everybody. It was that realization and that it wasn't a one-off. Because I think I thought it was like, oh, I've just had some bad luck and it's a bit shit. But actually, when I realized that it was it was affecting thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, that was when I made me quite angry. And that was when I was like, no, we deserve better. We deserve transparency. It's not that necessarily, I'm not even on a crusade to make every company flexible. Like, I just want the flexible companies to find it easy to hire and for people to be able to find them. Like, I think every company should be flexible. But like, that's the secondary mission. The first one is like, let's just fix let's just fix the opacity in the system like it's broken yeah well to be honest with you they screwed that royally up and i think it's really important to share your story because there's other people that have been through this and sadly i'm sure it will happen again but i think you know there are many other great companies out there that won't behave in that way and i think that the light you're shining on those sorts of businesses is great and i think frankly we'll steal the lunch of the the inflexible companies that just won't move for the times exactly that's the hope <laughs> i'm sure there's going to be a lot of people like when they hear that story they just just feel so angry inside let's focus on the positives flexer you've alluded to what it does which is amazing how does that like actually work for employers for candidates like anyone that, that is like wow i love the sound of this how can i get involved like how is it going to benefit me so for candidates, super simple. We've kept it open. You don't have to register um, in order to access anything. We want maximum visibility and maximum transparency. So you can literally just go on Flexa.careers. And it's a bit like how you'd use Airbnb. You know, you want if you go on Airbnb, you're going to put on that you want a nice countryside, entire place to yourself with a hot tub and it's dog friendly. You put those filters on, your properties come up. It's exactly the same on Flexa. You can search by companies and you'll say, I want hybrid working one to two days a week from home i want dog friendly office and i want flexible hours and we're also adding the functionality to be able to search by all sorts of benefits as well so enhanced maternity or paternity leave unlimited or enhanced annual leave you can put in all of the criteria that like really really matters to you and get matched to those perfect companies so it's pretty simple from the from the candidate perspective but it's a product that's really really resonated with the market and we're growing by about forty thousand new users every month so and every company obviously is verified by us. So from a company perspective, you can't just sign up. Like that would sort of defeat the purpose of Flexer because if you look on like LinkedIn at the moment, they've got, yeah, they've got tick boxes of remote, hybrid or in office. 
but the majority of companies will tick remote. I think they're saying at the moment, like 68% of roles are ticked remote, but only 18% of them are actually fully remote. Really? You know, pretty hard to judge. And then same with on Glot. Yeah, amazing disparity. And then same with Glassdoor. Like, if you read those reviews, some people will say the flexible working is amazing and others won't because it's all just like companies are just on there. So for us, it was really important to weed out which companies are genuinely flexible. So we built a two-stage benchmarking process with now millions of data points that effectively quantify what flexibility is. Because I think one of the biggest barriers to the growth of flexible working has been the fact that no one's ever been able to define it or quantify it. Like it's very big picture, pie in the sky, like there's a level of flexibility. And then sometimes that really puts companies off because they're like, oh, I don't want to have to provide total freedom. Like I need people in the office sometimes or I, I don't want totally asynchronous hours. So we've quantified it and its flexibility is now a spectrum. It goes from the minimum of like one to two days a week from home and a bit of flexibility on hours all the way to the maximum of you don't have to work in a set place, work set hours, you can do whatever you want just as long as you get your work done, you know. That's 60 to 100 on our scale. And we check with employees whether that's actually the case. So we don't just take the employer's word for it. With the, we call them like quizzes to make it fun. I hope it is fun. You've been through it. <laughs> <laughs> then we survey a statistically significant sample of employees at a company. You know, if it's a big company, that would only be 5%. If it's a small company, it would be like 50%. To make sure that the experience is of the same level of flexibility, we then showcase those two scores. So every company on Flexa has gone through that process. But it's super automated and streamlined. It takes each company like 10 minutes. We then aggregate all of that data. And then companies on board, they get their company page. They talk all about flexibility. They're on the Flex platform. They're appearing in tens of thousands of searches every single month for people looking for those working environments. And we're just building that visibility. And um, we obviously integrate with applicant tracking systems as well so that there's a route to be able to direct people to roles. But we see all sorts of different user behaviors. So like someone could be on LinkedIn, they'll come on and search on Flexa. Is that company done talking to Flexifies? Then they'll go back to LinkedIn or they might be talking to a recruiter. They'll come on to Flexa and check. You know, it's all about just transparency and availability of information. Awesome. And it's just so great to hear that the growth stat uh, business is, is clearly thriving. That said, we both know firsthand that starting up a business and then growing it is hard. It's really hard graph. So we always like to talk about the challenges on Fortunate Mental. What has been the hardest part so far for you? And what have been your learnings from those challenges or challenge? I think one of the hardest parts of starting a business, and I think startups are like really, really glamorized, I think in mainstream media, on LinkedIn, you know, everybody, it seems to be the dream of, to become an entrepreneur. Like, yeah, some bits are great. You get to run your own business and create something, which is cool. And I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love it. But if somebody had told me back in July, 2019, when we initially had the idea at the pub, that all of the shit that we'd then go through over the next three years, I'd be like, no, <laughs> I'm not yeah, doing that. So true. <laughs> You've got to be a real glutton for punishment, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. To want to go through all the crap. Yeah. And people like, they don't tell you that like you can't get a mortgage if you're self-employed and the company's not profitable. Like you just don't have the same level of financial freedom because all of your wealth is on paper, which is useless in the real world, to be honest. And I think, but to answer your question directly, I think the hardest thing has been maintaining momentum, like mentally for me. You know, you'll wake up some mornings, you're like raring to go, but then another week, you're like, a few things have gone wrong. Oh, you're just really tired. And you're like, oh, I, I don't, 
I, I just don't feel like it today. Like I'm done. Like, and yes, of course you get that in any job, but I think the, the peaks and troughs in startups are so much bigger that yeah, the average might work out to being slightly above average, but your peaks and your ideas are like very high and very low and no one prepares you for that. That is so true. And I think. I hate to say it to you and anyone else listening, but 10 years in, it's still like that for me. Like I still have those days where I'm on top of the world and it's like, yes, this is the best thing I've ever done. And like, wow, the team and the clients and, you know, all the, all the success. And then others where I'm like, why the hell did I ever set this up? Like, this is just killing me and I'm just so drained. And I think that is the reality of, of, of actually running a business. And it doesn't mean you don't love what you do and it doesn't mean you're, you're not going to stick the course. But the truth is, it requires tons of resilience. And that's where, I, I guess, Fortune Mental comes in. Mentors in general, great sounding boards, co-founders. And I think it's, for me, the mark of a true entrepreneur is, yes, disrupting or creating categories, but it's also, do you have the resilience to get through those hard times, learn from them and keep going. And then they do get easier. They get quicker to bounce back from, I find, but it's never easy. <laughs> it's never easy. And I think like a lot of, obviously it depends on the kind of person that you are, but like I was never an anxious person ever. Like didn't, you know, you'd hear some people talk about it and I wouldn't really understand it until starting Flexa. And then there's just this level of like latent anxiety. And you're like, oh, now I totally get it. Because as much as, yes, you, you can really raise those money and things can always be going really, really well, you're very conscious of the shit days that will approach because inevitably they will. And like inevitably you're not going to get stuff right first time every time. And to your point of like resilience, I think it's a really underrated soft skill that is, if you can even call it a skill, I do think it's learned over time. That is what's really, really needed despite how anxious or tired or fed up you might feel. Yeah, agree. I, I'm on the board of a, an accelerator called Unrest, and actually, it's a relatively new accelerator, and it's backing impact businesses. And one of the most important parts of that program is founder resilience. So uh, I think it's becoming increasingly seen as actually, if you want startups to succeed, you have to invest in the founders, and actually, their mental health and well-being is as important as the product market fit and you know the monetization strategy. So it's really interesting that you, you say that. I actually think the founders that you're investing in and their resilience is more important because in all likelihood, the product that someone initially invests in will change. The market will change. Like it's not just immediately going, when to talk about product market fit, it's not just finding product market. If you found product market fit two years ago, it's now going to be completely different to the current current market now. And it's the resilience of the founders that will get them through that and to keep pushing to find that product market fit, to pivot the product when they need to, to change and to adapt. And I think you could, it should be the most important thing that people look for, because otherwise, how do you find someone that can navigate through difficulties and not get totally spooked and like anchored on the fact, oh, but we had a great product and great product market fit, and everybody told us that was why they invested. I think it's really important that people are able to see and adapt and change their business as the market changes too. Totally. Great advice. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness, and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. 
Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 Minute Mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 Minute Mentor. One of the things that helps founders through the difficult times is actually having a co-founder, which I stupidly never did. So I've been kind of relying on my wife and friends and family and colleagues, of course. Yours is a unique case, though, because your co-founder or one of your co-founders is also your fiance, as you just said. So I assume some days are great and there are probably some challenges. For anyone listening to this that might be thinking about going into business with their other half, like what advice do you have for them? Probably my most interesting piece of advice is that like, I never expected it to be an issue with investors. We are three co-founders. Two of us are in a relationship, always, always keen to clarify that one. <laughs> and it's just quite surprising how... So when we were raising... So we raised pre-seed round, then we did a bridge round, then we have done a seed round. And in that bridge round, we were very open about the fact that we were a couple. And some investors didn't even open the deck because we were a couple. They were like, no. I have a feeling they must have been burnt in some way before, but it's that's pretty sad that, that they wouldn't even give it a chance. I don't think it's necessarily even being burnt. I think often what people do is they tend to project their own relationships on them to you. And I totally understand if there are people that would absolutely wouldn't want to work with their partner. Like, completely fair enough. It's not for everybody. It's all consuming. But it was right for Morris and I because... We're very similar in some ways, but our skill sets are very different. So like the way that we deal with problems, the way that we deal with stress, the way that we deal with conflict, and the way that we kind of think about strategy and the markets, everything is very similar. But then what I'm good at is totally different to what he is good at. So we'll come together to solve something in a very similar way. But not everybody is in a relationship like that. You know, it's no so better that we are. It's just that it was good for founding a company. It's not necessarily a better relationship. I think that is probably the key thing that's been good for us but then investors didn't see don't bother to find that out because i personally think that if you are in a relationship that has got three three years of running a business together there must be something there that means that you can deal with conflicts in a good way you can come to resolutions you can compromise whereas like imagine for me i'd be terrified to back a business that had like two co-founders that didn't know each other they have no history of dealing with conflicts they have no history of understanding each other and working through difficult times or stress you don't know how they operate. And I think that's riskier than investing in a couple. Like, yes, their relationship might break up, but it has lower odds than two random people not getting on. So that was really, really surprising to me. One thing I do also would advise if people are thinking about it is see me incredibly successful, like Clearbank's a couple, Canva was a couple, amazing success stories. But you are putting all of your eggs in one basket, all of them. You know, your entire future as a couple is resting on that business it's not like somebody else can go and earn a salary like you've got a family in that business it's not like someone else can go off and get a mortgage it's you two in it so that's something because we went into it kind of quite accidentally like it happened quite organically we weren't like oh we're going to start a business today so that is what i would always bear in mind is like it's a bigger risk than you probably first realize totally are you able to stop talking about work over the dinner table or when you're on a holiday or no. does it consume all thoughts okay yeah yeah i can get I that 80 percent of what we talk about is is flexible okay fair enough fair enough well one of the investors that 
quite rightly saw through that potential challenge was Ada Ventures. Uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you raised 2.3 million from some amazing investors like Chuck Warner at Ada, who's a previous 40-minute mentor. For anyone that's listening to this, could you share a bit more about your, your fundraising experience? I read that you'd approached in a very unique way with you know, no pitch deck at all. So can you tell us a bit about your approach to it, what your learnings were from that process, just any particular tips or advice for any other founders that are raising at the moment? Tough time to raise at the moment. Yeah, gosh, I have so much, so many learnings. I always say to people, like, my number one piece of advice is don't listen to everybody's advice. Only listen when everyone's telling you the same thing. So the advice that I give, like, it's just it's just my opinion. And I like opining on things, clearly. But um, fundraising, where do I start? I think it's probably most interesting for me to talk about it from the perspective of being a woman and trying to fundraise as a woman. And actually, probably why we ended up with brilliant investors like Cheka Ada, um, like Alzo, who are a female-run and female-focused German VC, and a lot of our angels are female-focused as well. Little did I know that there was this ecosystem when we, when we first started out, but I think it's so important that female founders try to seek out female investors because the only way that we can change a very broken system of only 1.8% of funding going to women is by getting more representation on both sides of the table. So when we started, both Morris and I were, were doing the pitches together. We learned pretty quickly that doesn't work. I think kind of basic human psychology, people like building a bond with one person, it's harder to do it with two people, especially on Zoom. So then we canned that after our pre-seed, which we did successfully raise, but it was harder than it probably should have been. Then went to just me pitching. And I think it's very hard to explain the experience because people always you know when you, when you talk about difficulty and you talk about being treated differently people want like a big scary example that they can fully conceptualize and fully understand like they want for them to believe that raising money as a woman is harder they want to hear that like you've been told that you're less capable than a man and that you're going to go off maternity leave immediately like that doesn't happen people aren't that brazen and obvious but you just end up in situations where you know I'll answer questions and then they would speak back to Morris and completely ignore that I'd spoken at times where you're asked you know preventative questions that are much more accusatory about why you've started that business rather than opportunistic questions like how big can that get just various different like very small very difficult to put your finger on kind of microaggressions and you just have to kind of plow on and ignore the people that are doing that and eventually you'll find the investors that don't see women as a negative they see them as a positive because at best you feel like you're kind of neutral yeah it's depressing isn't it this is a common challenge that a lot of female and underrepresented founders suffer from when raising and it's completely unfair i love the fact that you know half of your cap table is made up of women investors i mean that sort of stance can only help just the broader ecosystem and i think also vc firms need to hire and promote and progress female investors same as underrepresented investors as well to show that it can be done because they are going to come looking at investments from a different lens and there's still a lot of work to be done there but it is changing and companies like ada are helping with that change, I think. I'm conscious of time, and I think it's really important for us to talk about the future of work and hiring, given our shared passion for, for this topic. You know, we both get this unique insight, really a front row seat to understanding what, what candidates are looking for and how companies are, are evolving at the moment. And there's been a huge shift, particularly during and post the pandemic. So from your standpoint, 
what changes have you seen in the employer market and what does flexible working truly mean in 2022? Uh, flexibility in 2022 means choice, simply. I think that makes it kind of easier to quantify and understand. It's like it means choice, but what level of choice do you as a company want to give people? That's how much flexibility you're giving somebody. You know, have they got the choice to come into the office or work from home? Have they got the choice on days? Have they got the choice on hours? And you pick what choice you want to give. And I think that it's all about people choosing their companies based on exactly what is on offer, which is why I think it's so important to be transparent about it and for us to have built something like Flexa. I think that's been the biggest shift in the candidate market is that people care just as much about how they work as what they do. So if you think about now how people look for roles, it used to be that if you were a product manager, you'd just apply to all the product manager roles that sat within the right salary range and had the right kind of level of experience for you. Now, a hybrid product manager role, a fully remote product manager role, and an in-office product manager role are three different jobs. And people won't apply to all three. They will apply to one. So the market has become like super, super disaggregated. And companies, I think, are quite shocked by that because their level of applications, if you are offering one of the less popular options, will decline. So it's about being really transparent about that. And is it not better to get 20 really brilliantly matched in terms of like people want to work like that applications that you don't waste your time on because you've been upfront about it than it is to hide it, get 100 applications. And then as soon as you speak to somebody for the first time, 80% of them drop off anyway. You know, it's making the process more efficient. Totally. Thank you very much. Following the pandemic, you know, we've seen lots of employers embracing hybrid work models. We've talked about Remote First, which is what, what, what JBM has. And then there are lots of companies out there who have completely reverted back to office first policies. We've seen the you know, CEOs of big banks literally forcing people back to, to the office, which is, for me, absolute insanity. Why do you think these employers are missing out through putting such a big emphasis on teams being in the office? And are there any cases in which you can see the benefit of stripping back some of that flexibility? I don't think it's a good idea. But I think if a company wants to force everybody back into an office and they're willing to like pay more, for example, like a lot more to get people back in, and that's what they want to do. And then there are obviously going to be candidates that are like, yeah, I just want to earn more money. I don't care. And they're open and transparent about that. Then they're going to get matched with those people. Like that's not wrong. What is wrong is hiding it lulling people into a false sense of security, creating a working environment where people cannot thrive because they don't know what's on offer. That is wrong. I think that the companies that are forcing people back in five days a week, the majority of them don't need to do that. Like I, to some extent, you know, if you're an investment bank and you're on the trading floor, that kind of environment is pretty hard to simulate at home. So I can, to some extent, understand why those companies want to go back in. But there are plenty of organizations that are forcing people back into the office just because of a fear of the unknown. And these are people, often these businesses are run by people who their own careers thrive through working in the office every day. They're used to seeing people and and measuring their output by presenteeism. They don't know how to do it differently. Like look at Sir Alan Sugar and his comments, right? He thrives in the office through seeing people at their desks. But what those people tend to forget is that people are just as likely to be unproductive in the office as they are at home. Like I used to sit behind someone who was seen as like 
a really, really good employee because he was always there like 12 hours a day. He was watching the cricket for six hours a day on his blackout screen. Like he wasn't doing any work. He was just watching the cricket. He could have done that at home too, but just because he was in the office, he was seen as better than some people who worked really hard but left at five o'clock. That's wrong and that happens all the time. So I think that companies need to take like a really, really good introspective look at themselves and think, do what we actually need to be in the office five days a week? Or is it my fear of adapting to a new management style and measuring output rather than presence here? And is that what's stopping me from forcing those kind of forces? Is that what's stopping me from enabling flexibility and stopping forcing people back in? If the answer is no, it's not that, then fine. Put people back in. If you have to, if you have to be in the office, if it's a trading floor, if it's a warehouse, you know, there are some jobs that can't be done basically. Fine. But don't do it because of fear. Yeah, agreed. They're going to be founders and, and leaders listening to this. So what insights can you share on what talent that's coming to Flexa are looking for when they're browsing for jobs? And how can employers and companies stand out from the crowd in terms of what they're offering and what's uh, going to appeal to candidates? So from a search perspective, like in terms of working environments, that's some really interesting data. So hybrid generally sits at around kind of 20 to 25 percent of people searching for that in a three-month rolling average so like pretty solid quarter which is interesting remote first is like skyrocketed so it used to sit around 20 obviously kind of pandemic times where people just didn't even want the option to go into the office and now that has risen to being completely in line with fully remote both of which are around 42 percent of people wanting exactly those working environments obviously sort of yeah about 40 percent and then, unsurprisingly, the very, very negligible difference of office space is like 0.6. People aren't coming to Flexa to look for in-office jobs. So like, it is slightly skewed in that sense. But if we're talking about flexibility around, yeah, it's about kind of 20, 40, 40, and that varies slightly month on month. So very interesting, that remote first element, because I think, again, it comes back to flexibility being about choice. People want the choice to be able to go into an office. Like the heat wave is a perfect example of that. If you've got an air office, there's going to be a lot of people in that right now. But people want the choice to be able to go in. Flexible hours is a great way to stand out as well. Over 50% of people want some flexibility in hours. And it's a really, really easy thing for a company to do. You just say core hours of 10 to 4 or 11 to 3. We do 11 to 3. It works really well. People work around that. That's not a scary thing to embrace. Like people are still working. It's just saying those are the times. And then I guess from a benefits perspective, which are also like really, really quick wins, Dog-friendly offices have skyrocketed in popularity as everybody got a dog in lockdown. We've now got around 20% of people wanting a dog-friendly office. It's very interesting. And interesting as well, coming back into like school time and coming out of COVID and homeschooling, the demand for being open to part-time employees has gone from like pretty solid, like consistent rolling average, about 15% of people, all the way up to 40. So being open to part-time will really help you to be able to hire like very very qualified parents who want to be both with their families and have a career. And then the final one that's worth calling out is work from anywhere schemes. They didn't exist before COVID. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, oh, I want to go on holiday and work. I can. And now they're offering 85% of people with life access to one. Yeah. It's so Amazing. interesting. And it's music to my ears because we have a dog-friendly office. We can work from anywhere. And we've been doing uh, uh, you know, short weeks, uh, part-time working for four years. So we've not got to totally crap. There's still a lot to, to work on. But it, the truth is, it's just, I think I think this is a really good opportunity. And I've had to adapt my style, to be honest with you, to these new policies. Uh, and, and frankly, some that we've been doing a long time, I'm still learning how to manage effectively when it's remote. But I think it's a really good challenge for a lot of 
leaders to learn to trust your team, which you absolutely should, but sometimes isn't always the case, to trust them and then also to make it less about presenteeism and more about outputs because that's just better for business. You know, that's just better. If people are working shorter amount of times, but just nailing it and hitting their targets and exceeding them, then let them have the flexibility. Enjoy. And this is exactly my philosophy. And I think, you know, there's, there's some amazing companies out there, many of whom are on flexible platform that are just the perfect examples of how you can do it well. And as a result, attract and retain the best talent on the market, which is often the difference between a good and a great company is having that, that sort of people. And, and I think some of the very best talent just love the flexibility and the choice, as you said. Yeah, because they can be the ones that demand it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and therefore, you either kind of adapt and like attract those sorts of people or you accept perhaps mediocrity, which I don't know why you'd want that. We've acknowledged that there's been a lot of change in the last few years, particularly the last decade, and those are going to keep coming. So what do you foresee as, you know, just anything just quickly on the future of work for the next five, 10 years? Are there things that you think are coming? Are there anything more from the pre-pandemic era that's going to make a comeback? Anything particular that we should think about? And a, a final addition to that question is just, is there any other tips you have for anyone listening here who is struggling with some of this stuff, because there's a lot there, particularly maybe when it comes to retention of talent. Is there anything else you just chuck in to help our listeners? So I think if anyone's struggling, and it is it is a daunting thing, deciding about exactly the approach to flexibility and making that work, it is daunting. So I, you know, don't try and achieve everything all at once. Like flexibility doesn't have to be no rules. I always talk, of it, talk about it as being like freedom in a framework. So decide what that framework is and my piece of advice on deciding what that framework is is to make a minimum commitment to flexibility something that everybody in your that is office space can access that could be two days a week from home 10 to 10 to 4 core hours and a few great benefits like enhanced parental leave enhanced annual leave and you know quarternity leave or a dog friendly office or something decide on those benefits communicate them really really clearly to your employees get their feedback and iterate you don't have to start with something really, really big and scary. See how that goes. See what people want. And don't, when you then get people's feedback, try to appeal to everybody. You cannot appeal to everybody. There naturally will be some attrition once you start deciding. But that's not wrong. That's not bad because you don't want people in your organization that don't want to work in the way that your company works. And if you're appealing to the 80% of people in your organization and they're happy, that's what to focus on. And if those 20% aren't happy and they want to go to a company that offers them something else, let them. Like there's naturally, and this kind of nicely segues onto my future of work bit, I think one of the biggest shifts that we will see is like some people have called it like the great reshuffle. So people that are working in a hybrid company that want to go fully remote are going to move. People in a fully remote company that want to go into the office sometimes are going to move to a remote first company. People that are being forced back to the office that don't want to be, they're going to move. And that's okay. Because ultimately, then you get a, a you know a, an overall global working environment where everybody is working in places that are better suited to them, and productivity goes up. Attrition isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it is, of course, and like if your attrition levels have suddenly skyrocketed, you can't retain your good employees, you have a problem. But it's not always a terrible thing. Sometimes it's good for company culture. Totally, so true. And we said it before in this podcast. There are times where certain types of talent are great for a company in a certain point, and then 
you know companies evolve and they're maybe not as as relevant skill set wise or experience wise and it's okay for things to change and the beauty of this market is whether it's setting up a business joining a startup a scale up you know you can transition between industries much more easily now like there is a lot of opportunity out there and i think yeah definitely come to jbm and or flexer and uh you'll find the most flexible companies so i think it's a it's a win-win Molly, it's been a really enjoyable chat. I feel like we can easily go for another hour, but we're sadly close to the end here. I'm going to do our wrap-up questions. So in one sentence, what does the future hold for Flexer? Cementing ourselves as the global directory for verified flexible companies. And the only place to go is to find that information. I would say you are well on the way to becoming that. At the end of your career, what would you like to be remembered for? I would like to have been so quietly successful that people don't necessarily people that i don't know won't remember me if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive who would it be and why i don't know about mentoring i just quite like to have a regular chat with david attenborough oh what guy yes i think we all could learn a lot from sir david national treasure exactly. not directly <laughs> relevant but i love him yeah no no god i mean do you know what mentorship one of our board advisors is a sustainability entrepreneur environmental entrepreneur and some of the insights she gives me, she has nothing to do with recruitment, headhunting, all tech, but she gives me some of the best advice of anybody. So I think you can get mentorship from all different places and it can be valuable as a founder. Finally, Molly, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Probably before taking anything personally, try to assess if it was actually personal. Brilliant. Love it. Thank you so much, Molly. You know we are rooting for you on the sidelines and, and the whole Flexa team. Love what you're doing. I have no doubt it's going to continue to be a huge success and shine a light on all the great companies out there offering flexible work. So thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your mentorship as well with our listeners. And I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to me. Ramble on. <laughs> <laughs> no rambling at all. All very succinct, insightful stuff. So thank you very much. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Molly is a superstar and Flexit is a company that we've really needed in the startup space for many, many years. So I expect it to become a household name in the months and years to come. Her and her team are doing really important work. So if you haven't checked them out already, do make sure you do. And if you did enjoy this episode, we would love to hear from you. So please feel free to send your feedback to info at jbmc.co.uk. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you won't miss next week's episode when I'm joined by Sho Shugihara, the co-founder and CEO of the financial inclusion fintech PAVE. Here's a little preview of what you can expect to learn from Sho. Enjoy. I wasn't that kid selling lemonade on the street age five, right? That wasn't me. I rode for Deliveroo a bit to, well, understand what the job is like. And it's actually really lonely, which was an interesting insight. It took us, I don't know, 15, 20 iterations of the product. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's 40-minute mental episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast series so far, we'd love to see you at our live recording at the Sifted Summit in London on October the 5th and 6th. Our live discussion will be all about purpose over profit and will feature some of the most successful purpose-driven founders and investors in the tech ecosystem. Plus, you'll get the chance to ask your own questions and get involved in the discussion. So if this sounds interesting, please make sure you head over to www.summit.com 
www.sifted.eu and claim one of our 40 free tickets by redeeming the code 40MMFREE. That's all one word, 40MMFREE. You can find all the details in today's show notes and over on the JBM website. I hope I'll see you there.